I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week, we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith in our daily lives, so that together, you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. This coming week is an important one. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that. First of which uh, is that it's my birthday. It's my birthday week. I'm very excited. August 17th, I will be, I'm not telling you, I will be older. And uh, if, you, if you just are filled with joy for that thought, well, then you can get me something. But in getting me something, I want to give you something back. If you go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link. It says support the show. And right there, you can do just that for as little as $5 a month. You can help keep this show on the air. And I, this is the more exciting part, I will give you extra segments each and every week. Not only will I give you extra segments moving forward from here, including a fantastic extra segment where we talk about vocation today with Archbishop Cordelione of San Francisco. But you also get all the extra segments that we have ever produced. We've done this for about a year now, and I'm very excited to share it with you. My birthday, August 17th, is the perfect time to start that. But that's not the only thing that makes this week important. It's also the anniversary of the death of Elvis Presley. It's true. He died August 16th, the same year I was born. I just gave away how old I am. I always know how old I am because the day before, the news always tells me. They say, on this day, X number of years ago, Elvis Presley, the king, passed away, right? And so we, we have that, that day, that amazing day, but that's not the most important anniversary. Not my birthday, no. Not, uh, not the king, no, uh, the day before, August 15th, that is the solemnity of the Assumption of Mary. This is the day where we celebrate the end of Mary's earthly life. When her, when her life on earth was completed, she was assumed bodily, body and soul, into heaven, where she sits before Christ, her son, uh, as as a, a foretaste of our own resurrection, there's only a few uh, in heaven right now, at this moment, who are there, body and soul. Of course, Jesus is there. He resurrected. He ascended into heaven of his own power, and uh, and he is there before, uh, beside, sitting beside God the Father, in his body and his soul. Uh, Mary, of course, was assumed uh, the assumption of Mary where she was brought into heaven, not of her own power, but of uh, the power of God. And she is their body and soul. Of course, we have uh, Elijah who was taken up in the whirlwind of fire. He's their body and soul. And uh, perhaps, maybe, just maybe, uh, a guy by the name of Enoch from the Old Testament who walked with God and was no more. We're not told at all about his death. Uh, and so there is a strong possibility that he too is there, body and soul, in heaven. The rest of us who uh, who we pass away and we have our our bodies buried here, uh, our spirits go and are purified if they need it and spend uh, eternity there enjoying the beatific vision before God the Father, witnessing the glory of Christ. Uh, in our spirits, but we still long for the resurrection of the body, which is why we say, I believe, as we do each week in the creed, in the resurrection of the body, 
right? This body that we have right here that eventually will lay beneath the earth, one day will be resurrected just as Christ was resurrected. And our bodies, this body, will rejoin our spirits in the heavenly realms where we will enjoy the beatific vision. World without end. Amen. Now, that's uh, th- there's nothing better than that. We're going to go, we're going to celebrate Mass together on Wednesday. It's a holy day of obligation. And so, or as, or as uh, Father Gary Castle, um, dear, very dear to my heart, uh, who was my pastor for a number of years, as he would always say, it's a holy day of opportunity where we get to join together and celebrate that Paschal mystery of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And we get to be nourished and fed by the Eucharist. Uh, but there are some other really significant days as well. Uh, the one right prior to that, on the 14th of August, is the feast day of St. Maximilian Kolbe. And uh, he is my patron saint. He's the, the saint that I chose to be my confirmation saint when I came into the church, which was really kind of a surprise for me because I fully expected, coming in from the Protestant church, I was going to pick one of those saints from the Bible because I was more comfortable with them, because I had, uh, I, I knew for a fact that they were there, right? I knew for a fact that the apostles would be there. I was fully anticipating picking John, the, the evangelist, or, uh, or St. Luke, or someone like that. But lo and behold, St. Maximilian Kolbe sought me out. Uh, as I was longing to, uh, to devote my life to marriage, and not just my own, but to the support and help of other people's marriages and families, I came across St. Maximilian. And, of course, he, uh, he was martyred in uh, an Auschwitz during World War II, and he gave his life up for someone else who was condemned to die, uh, and that person had a family, and they cried out, and they said, uh, oh, my wife and my children. And Maximilian Kolbe stepped forward and said to the guards, I want to die in that man's place. And so for me, that was just uh, an amazing story. Of course, he, uh, he was taken to, uh, to the starvation chambers, and he was there for nearly two weeks as he didn't just have a quick death, but he died uh, slowly, offering his life, pouring it out as an offering to God on behalf of another person, saving that life and saving that family. Uh, and so for me, that was, that was really, he grabbed my attention and grabbed my heart and showed me uh, what it really means to be a saint in these days. And so this is a week that is packed full of, of memories and remembrances and celebrations. Uh, the most important, of course, being the 15th as we celebrate the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Make sure you make it to Mass. Don't go anywhere because I have a great show for you today as we share an interview from the Humana Vitae Conference a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're talking today with Archbishop Cordelione of San Francisco, and it's going to be a fantastic conversation. Of course, all those talks from that conference are going to be available over at CelebrateHV50.com here in the very near future. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. And as you recall, I went to the Humanity Vitae Conference out in California, celebrating the 50th anniversary. And we're bringing you a series of interviews over the next couple of weeks that we had there at that event. Uh, and I'm joined now by Archbishop Cordelione, uh, who is the, the Archbishop of San Francisco. He served as the chair of the subcommittee for the promotion and defense of marriage for the USCCB. And uh, you, you went out to San Francisco right about 2012, which is right when I became... Uh, shortly after I became Catholic and right as I began working in family ministry at uh, the Diocese of Tulsa. And so I, I, I followed your work at that point in time very closely. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. So here we are. We're 50 years past the release of this encyclical, Humana Vitae, and we're, we're starting to see specifically around this 50th anniversary a, a lot more conversation uh, where perhaps we haven't had it before. What do you see as... Um, as the steps that we need to take forward in really appropriating this document in the church today? There's so much drawn in these last 50 years, uh, in, not just in church teaching, although that also, but in science, so much we've learned so much from science. Mm -hmm. There's been so much progress in uh, natural methods of, of uh, tracking a woman's fertility and in the accuracy of the methods and insights into the how healthy these meth methods are, uh, the benefits of the natural methods, and not only the health benefits for the women, the women involved, but also in terms of the relationship with a couple and uh, in so many other ways, as well as a lot of uh, more insight from science about the damage that uh, contraceptives right. do, uh, damage to the woman and her health, the, the, the side effects, the, the health risks, damage to the environment. We're learning more and more about that with the hormonal contraceptives. So there's a lot to draw on from uh, science, hard science, from social science, as well as from church teaching. Uh, we have this tremendous gift that God gave us with St. John Paul II and his Theology of the Body, um, a, a teaching that uh, resonates especially with young people who have been victimized by this kind of dehumanizing understanding right. of the human person that all that has come in the wake of the sexual revolution. They, uh, many of them have wake, woken up now to the truth and, and see how they have been victimized from it, how dehumanizing it really is. They understand from his teaching about the, the profound meaning that God wove into his uh, creation by creating us male and female. And, and how he designed our bodies to work, how he designed complementarity between the man and the woman as a way of revealing him his love to us and uh, helping us to uh, understand the, his love and, and create the capacity within us for receiving and sharing that love. So we have a lot to draw on. We need to uh, teach people to teach how, right. to, to know how to teach this to, to our people. We see a generation now of, of younger priests that uh, understand it and are willing to preach on it, willing to, to teach it in, in their parishes. Uh, the atmosphere was so different 50 years ago, so very yeah. different. As I mentioned in my talk uh, at, the, at the conference, that you know, we, we should take, take heart and be encouraged by what we see now. As, as bad as things seem in some ways, these even dozens of conferences and symposiums and special mm -hmm. events to mark the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, uh, one of the more prominent ones being at Catholic University of America, which right. at the time was the epicenter of the dissent. 
this would have been unimaginable 50 mm -hmm. years ago. So there, there are signs of hope. There are signs of renewal. We need to continue pushing that forward and drawing on all of these uh, sources that we have. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can find uh, the Archbishop's talk by going to celebratehv50.com. Now, you, you of course, served on this, uh, this subcommittee for the USCCB. Uh, I'm personally curious how, how that operates. Do, uh, does your area of interest come first and then the assignment is made uh, to flow out of your passions and your interests uh, in shaping the church? Or is that something that uh, your study uh, followed the appointment as you then dove into this topic? Well, this gets into how the, the Conference of Bishops operates. Mm -hmm. So we have a number of standing committees um, that cover all, all of the mission of the right. church, one of which is laity, marriage, family, life, and youth. Uh, the chairman of those committees are elected by the body of bishops. Mm -hmm. And then some of those committees have committees under them, subcommittees or ad hoc committees, sometimes task forces. So this, this defense of marriage, it started out as an ad hoc committee, which an ad hoc committee by definition, it envisions it being sunsetting out when its task is completed. So right. it's much more similar to a task force in that sense. So it started out as an ad hoc committee. The chairman of the standing parent committee appoints the chairman of the subcommittees. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the chairman, whether it's a standing committee or subcommittee or ad hoc, is the one who invites other bishops to be members of that committee. Mm -hmm. So I was invited by Archbishop Kurtz, who at the time was chairing the ad hoc committee, to be a member of the, the ad hoc committee that uh, at some point transitioned into being a subcommittee, which was right around the same time I succeeded him as chairing the committee because he was elected the vice president of the conference, right. which many couldn't chair any committees. Yeah. So it was really originally started with the in invitation of Archbishop Kurtz to me to, to be on that committee and then... Uh, eventually, I was appointed to take his place mm -hmm. by um, Bishop Malone, who, uh, who at the time chaired the Committee for Lady Marriage, Family, Life, and Youth. As I look back on my life, though, I can see in God's kind of inscrutable design, we would never have anticipated uh, kind of all, all of the lines and movements of my life kind of pointing in this direction. Um, because a lot of my priesthood has been involved with uh, marriage ministry and, and issues involving marriage and family life from my studies of canon law, working in the tribunal, helped to give me a much deeper insight into mm -hmm. the church's understanding of marriage. Even canonically, it helps you to understand the theological meaning underlying that, which right. is so important for have a proper understanding and application of the law in the church. Uh, I ended up being involved for many years with the ministry and uh, the marriage encounter movement, uh, presenting uh, weekends and in leadership. And then later on, learning much more about theology of the body, and I could see how uh, a lot of the content of those weekends and marriage encounter uh, is sort of anticipated what's in theology of the body. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of that kind of woven together um, gave me, I think, a helpful background for the work that I did on that subcommittee. We're talking today with Archbishop Cordelione of San Francisco, and of course, your passion for this has gone well beyond the committee because you are now, uh, your tenure on that committee, is the chair is over, uh, someone else is in that place, and you continue to do the work. You're, of course, here at this, this 
conference, this national conference celebrating the 50th anniversary of Humana Vitae. You're here for the whole time, not just for, for one little speech and doing your part and then flying off as sometimes is necessary because a, an archbishop's schedule is very busy. Yes. Uh, and beyond that, you're on the board of the California Association of NFP, which is the organization that's helping put this event on. So this is something that you obviously have a, a deep desire to support and, and uphold. Yes, well, marriage and family ministry is the work of every bishop, mm -hmm. and every bishop has taking initiatives and implementing programs and strategies in, in his diocese. This is something I have been personally particularly committed to because I understand the importance, well, we all do, but it's been a particular passion for me of marriage and family as the, you know, the foundation, the cell of society, um, healthy, vibrant societies. If the society is going to flourish, it has to be built, built on intact um, unified uh, families, healthy families, and uh, families are based on marriage, so it all really comes down to marriage, and uh, I think there are a lot of us who understand that marriage really is something that has a lot to do with defining a civilization, so I've always understood the importance of it. I was blessed to grow up in a happy family. I mean, we had our struggles like every family right. does, especially, you know, <laughs> I'm of that generation to have come of age in the 60s and 70s, so, I mean, the worst possible time in history <laughs> to go go through those personal changes in the midst of all that upheaval, social upheaval that was going on at the time. And um, despite whatever problems we may have had in our, our family, it was because of the love of the family, I'm sure, that got me through it. We had, um, you know, I was blessed to grow up with my mother and father married their whole lives, you know, or the whole lives we were growing up, I never knew divorce in my family growing up. Now, sadly, it, it is, affects the family. But I knew my grandparents on both sides of the family. Uh, my father's parents lived next door to us. My mother's parents were a few miles away. All the cousins were together all the time. So that had a lot to do with shaping who I am and the whole way I look at the world. So it's given me a particular passion for this. I understand the blessings that come from family life, even when family life is imperfect, when it's t when it's together and there is love, there's just huge blessings to draw on that, which my siblings and I continue to do so. And I think this is a key point that I, I want to get into more in depth in our next segment. But really what the church is saying through Humana Vitae and through all of uh, the other things, the theology of the body and everything else coming, uh, dealing with human sexuality, is an invitation into a fulfillment, a great uh, a blessing, and, and not so much uh, a prohibition of, no, you shouldn't do this because you shouldn't. It's, no, you shouldn't do this because there's something so much better waiting for you over here. Right? Every no comes out of a yes. Right. We're saying yes to God and yes to God's design. And whenever you say yes to anything, you're going to have to say no to something mm -hmm. because you say no to the opposite. So uh, the church kind of gets uh, stereotyped as always saying no and as if it's oppressive to people's enjoyment. But um, as I pointed out in my, my talk uh, today and also to the priests yesterday, that the, what seemed to be a promise of liberation and joy and, and enjoyment ended up being oppressive mm -hmm. and I pointed out in both talks the Me Too movement. You know, mm -hmm. women are suffering 
from sexual advances for men, uninvited sexual advances. Some are being assaulted, but even if they're not assaulted, they feel emotionally assaulted when men make advances to them that they didn't invite. Mm -hmm. uh, so where is this coming out of? It's coming out of the idea that uh, these ideas that came out of the sexual revolution. So it ends up actually being very oppressive. Now, the problem is that it was a reaction to what was mm -hmm. perceived to be a repressive sexual ethic of right. where people couldn't have fun and had to be inhibited and all that, which maybe there'd be some cause for that, but there was this overreaction and they're both end up being equally oppressive. I love uh, in, in Humana Vitae, uh, as Pope Paul VI is listing the reasons that that it's important to uphold this prohibition on contraception. He says that uh, a man, and I love the, the, the language of this, a man may forget the reverence due to a woman and using her for his own benefit and to just uh, use her as a, a device to fulfill his own sexual desires. But that idea that this this thing on contraception isn't ruining anyone, it's not to ruin anyone's fun, it's to say there is a certain tenderness and reverence that a husband owes to his wife that contraception could obscure and, and make difficult to see. Absolutely, absolutely, and we see that happening. We, mm -hmm. we see that happening all over the place now. And, and so what, that leads to more sexual promiscuity and which leads to family breakdown. Yeah. We're talking today with Archbishop Cordelione, Archbishop of uh, San Francisco. We uh, had the chance to sit down with him at the Celebrate Humana Vitae Conference, CelebrateHV50.com. Go take a look at it where you can find archives of his talk and many more. Join the conversation over on Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, our handle's at Outside the Walls. But don't go too far because we're coming back with much more right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. And we had the opportunity recently to go to the Humanivite Conference in Ontario, California, put on by the California Association of Natural Family Planning. We talked with their director, Sheila St. John, a couple of weeks ago. You can find those uh, conversations in the archives over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Today we're talking with Archbishop Cordelione, Archbishop of, of San Francisco. And just before the break, Archbishop, you were talking about um, the promises that the sexual revolution gave us and, and how they fell short. And you wanted to, to pick back up on that. Yes, because I mentioned about how this increase of promiscuity, which now with uh, new developments in different types of uh, contraceptives, it made it much easier to slip into. But in addition, it's this kind of new sexual uh, ethic. Now, it's not that you know, I'm not naive. People have been sexually promiscuous in every age, right. and there's probably a lot more of it going on now than before, but it's always happened. One problem is how much of it is going on, uh, continuing to family breakdown, but there's something even more serious and more insidious, and that is, that is the social expectation. Mm -hmm. Before, when people misbehaved in this area of life, 
they felt some sense of guilt and even shame, a healthy shame, not a toxic shame, because they knew they were violating the social expectation, what the social norm is. Right. Now the social norm is that we are to be promiscuous, and those who try to live a well-ordered life in their sexual relationships and their relationship with their spouse and how they relate to other people are now uh, seen as different and are stigmatized and are, are uh, teased and, and mm -hmm. don't quite fit in. So. This is something even more serious, how the social, uh, sexual ethic in society has, and the expectations have shifted. Well, and this, you, you spoke about oppression, but th this is at its root what oppression is, is it, it takes someone who has a specific uh, desire and it basically brings them into, uh, into slavery or into the service of someone, it conscripts them into something that they wouldn't <laughs> otherwise do. So with, uh, with this expectation, that there's uh, that the promiscuity is the order of the day. Let's say for young couples that are uh, hoping to be married, uh, th there's an expectation sometimes put on them by uh, peers and sometimes put on them even by by mentors and adults saying, "Well, oh, yes, you should yes. live together first to make sure yes, that this works yes. out." And so they're being drawn away from virtue by virtue of uh, of the the order of the day. There's something else that happens that is not so easily perceived. This came as a revelation. to I read so much about the, this whole issue, but this was a new revelation to me. It came from the book that written by Professor Robert George and his two students, mm -hmm. uh, Ryan Anderson and Shreve Ajirius on uh, a marriage of defense. They point out in this work that this changed sexual ethic uh, ends up making friendship impossible. Right. Because now the, the only way of seeing how two people can relate to each other is in a sexual way. Mm -hmm. So it, that destroys the possibility for any kind of authentic friendship. And even if, uh, you know, just talking about social expectations, even if uh, two people personally felt like they could be uh, friends, there's always the, the nervousness of, you don't know if this person is being friends with you because they generally want to have a, a friendship based on virtue or if there's an ulterior motive involved. Exactly. That. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so you're always on Th your guard. That's always in the background. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's, let's take a little bit of a different tack now because as we're uh, celebrating and, and marking 50 years of Humana Vitae, we see um, a need not only for acceptance, but for uh, passionate defenders and passionate uh, uh, evangelists for the teaching of Humana Vitae. I, I like to say it's the encyclical, the little encyclical that everyone hates, but no one's read. <laughs> yes, and so, well, so well said. <laughs> being able to, to get the information from Humana Vitae, which of course is uh, an expansion on the, the work of Casti Canubi, which uh, preceded it in 1930. Uh, and then of course it's expanded even further in the theology of the body. Uh, this idea of the human person and the idea of uh, our connection to body and soul is not something that just is uh, popular or, or even widely known in our culture. We have to find and equip people to, to be winsome with this because it's not the no, it is the great yes that results in a smaller no, right? Exactly, I think the best, the best way to teach this is by couples who live it, displaying it in their marriage when people see that they see the reverence the husband has for the wife, and they see the joy in their marriage that 
it's not kind of a superficial passing happiness or giddiness, but a deep abiding joy, even the midst, in the midst of suffering, which every family has to put up with suffering and tragedy. When they can see the love and the unity and the joy there, that's the winsomeness that we need that will convince people. That's something I saw on Marriage Encounter Weekends that I presented. There's one of the talks always, it's very frank, sensitive sharing, but the couple shares about their sexual relationship and and the couples would openly speak about their practice of NFP, not to teach the couples right. attending the weekend, but just as part of their experience in their marriage. But it opens the eyes and minds of these couples and they want to learn more about it. So it's just living it out and being able to explain it when the opportunity arises. Right. I like to say um, that the, the scripture says we have to have an answer for the hope that's within us, but an answer presupposes a question. And so we need to live questionable lives yes. to plant those questions in <laughs> right. their minds and then be willing to, to approach uh, the sensitive topics. So my wife teaches natural family planning through uh, an apostolate called NFP Aware. And she keeps business cards on her that have uh, little phrases on the back that say um, 100% natural, uh, you know, all the different kind of buzzwords. Organic of and day. sustainable. Organic, <laughs> sustainable, no chemicals, yeah, no devices. Yeah, yeah. And and so she says it's amazing the people that will talk to her. Sometimes it's because we've got, you know, loads of children following behind. And <laughs> she says, oh, they were all planned, but I have to say that because I teach natural fertility management. And they're like, well, what's that? Oh, well, you just asked me a question. Let me answer it. And then laying it out uh, in always planting the next question in the answer to the previous oh, one. Oh, yes. Right. And so yes. there's this sense of being evangelistic and willing to talk about uncomfortable what, what would seem to be uncomfortable topics. And she says people ask her all the time because they're unhappy with what contraception does to them. They don't like the, the mood swings. They don't like the, the physical effects of it. And they want something different that's never been offered to them. I can't imagine it. Of course, I'm not married. I've never been married um, other than to the church as right. Christ. But I can't imagine a husband doing that to his wife or even allowing her to do it. Again, such a deprivation of the reverence that's owed to her. Mm -hmm. um, it's just hard for me, me to comprehend. So what would your advice be um, to maybe the couple who's approaching marriage and they're uncertain? They've, they've seen the dissent, they've heard the dissent, they've heard uh, natural methods completely dismissed in the culture, uh, and they've heard that the church is just trying to you know, control people's lives and control them in the bedroom. What are the spiritual benefits beyond maybe even relational benefits, what are the spiritual benefits that a couple would have for saying, you know, I need to take a second look at what the church is saying to me through these documents of humanivite, casti canubi, and the theology of the body? We need to get people in touch with their deepest desires. I think that's what's being lost. Uh, they're, they're trying to fill up their deepest desires through what is passing and superficial. Uh, God created us, another thing I bring out in my talks, you know, God, God created us for communion. Uh, communion is made possible with love. Love means uh, that gift of self that St. John Paul teaches in Theology of the Body. It means the cross, denying yourself for the good of another. That's hard sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, often it's hard in little ways and sometimes big ways. Uh, but that's, that's why I like to explain how God gives us each a personal vocation, marriage or religious vocation for some of us, or a particular talents, a call to, to serve him with, with some kind of work. Uh, to be the people he created us to be. But there's no way to persevere in that vocation without continually dying to yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But God gives us that vocation because he wants us to be happy. And he, know, he designed us to so know that we're, we're not going to be happy unless we learn that lesson of destroying our selfishness, destroying sin within us with the grace of Christ so that we can be capable of his love, receiving his love and sharing his love, which leads to the intimate communion that we want. So help people get in touch with this and then understand how do we live that out in our marriage and what are we saying about that and doing to our marriage if we're using devices and chemicals so we don't have to worry about the full ramifications of why God created us this way. One of the last speakers here brought up this fantastic point that uh, that erotic love in the terms of eros, the um, in the Greek, is is the desire to be connected with the beloved, and that contraception is fundamentally anti-erotic because it is saying I I want to be not connected to you in this way. It's so schizophrenic, uh, as he pointed out uh, to the priests that. The most intimate, intimate act possible between two human beings, and they speak about putting a barrier in place. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> well, I need I need to be protected from the person who I want to most be connected to. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, it just it, it seems seems uh, very incongruous. Mm-hmm. That whole idea of the erotic love, though that that was another insight I gained gained this time from Pope Benedict, is an encyclical God is love. This mm-hmm. is this was a new revelation to me. Uh, Reclaiming eros as a way of expressing the love of God uh, for his people. I always thought of it in terms of carnal love, and it meant nothing right. more than that. But it's it's incarnational, really, that carnal mm-hmm. love in, incarnates uh, the love and relationship God seeks with us. Yeah, and so we, we have um, this message of, of hope that we give to, to young couples, that we give to people who have been married for a long time, and, and maybe they just have felt the lack, uh, or, or they're looking for a deeper fulfillment. How do we equip the evangelist to go out and really, uh, the couple, to, to be overt uh, in this aspect of their faith and, and to draw other people in? It helps when we can start earlier in life, uh, if, we, if we have opportunities to teach people uh, when they're young, before they marry, to understand these principles and to appreciate them. I shared with the priest the story of when I was in a parish and the um, young couple came asking to be married. I knew the the groom's family quite well. I was friends with his father. He helped out the parish a lot. I knew the family well. I knew they're a good Catholic family. I didn't know her family, but I knew she came from a good Catholic family. But still, that's not always a guarantee. Right. What happened in this case is they attended the the small um, Catholic high school of the diocese near the parish where they had a teacher who teaches this. He teaches um, natural family planning, the principles of responsible parenting, but it's specifically NFP because I would always bring this up in the first meeting uh, when I would explain what their marriage preparation involves. Well, they already understood it, right. and they were on board with it. Yeah. Uh, so that really opened my eyes to how effective we could be if we were able to teach us at a younger age. So yes. that, that's one thing to do. And then the other thing is uh, when, when couples come to the church to be married to really, you know, Pope Francis keeps emphasizing this sense of an accompaniment to walk with them. 
we're implementing, beginning to implement in San Francisco, a marriage preparation process uh, that began in Southern Louisiana called Witness to Love. Yeah. You're familiar with I it, am. yes? I am. Uh, that's fantastic stuff. Yeah, so that the mentor couple that connects with the younger couple, but it's evangelizing, um, mm-hmm. not only going through different aspects of marriage, helping them prepare by doing the mass, and continuing after they get married mm-hmm. to be a mentor to them. For more information about this fantastic program, go to witnesstolove.org. We're talking today with Archbishop Cordelione, Archbishop of San Francisco. I had a chance to sit down with him at the Humana Vitae Conference in California a couple of weeks ago. You can find archives of his talk and many others by going to celebratehv50.com. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. So glad to have you today as we've been talking with Archbishop Cordelione, Archbishop of San Francisco. And it was my great privilege and honor to sit down with him a couple of weeks ago at the Humana Vitae Conference out in uh, just outside of L.A. Uh, you can find his talk and a number of other talks on their website, CelebrateHV50.com. Those are coming soon. If they're not quite there, bookmark the site and go back often until those those talks are posted because there's some fabulous stuff from Patrick Coffin to Christopher West to uh, Dr. Pia Del Salini and Dr. Janet Smith and and just a a whole host of others uh, who have shared their wisdom about uh, Humana Vitae and these 50 years following and, and where we take it from here moving forward. Now, if you missed any part of the show where you want to share this show with your friends, have no fear. That's right. It's archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. It's right there up at the top to make it easy for you to share on your social media or send in an email uh, or however you want to communicate. Hey, there was this fantastic show. You need to go listen. And if you can't get enough, well, there's more. Uh, I talked with Archbishop Cordelione about his own vocation story and about how to foster vocations in, uh, in the circle of influence right around you. It's a great extra conversation that I give to those who support the show through Patreon. If you want to join their numbers and get access to that, go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and follow the directions. Now today, our reading from Scripture and Church History is, uh, is pulled from yesterday, from the Feast of St. Lawrence. And it centers around this idea of following Christ when it's difficult. And whether or not you are a person who fully subscribes and wholeheartedly agrees with Humana Vitae, or whether you're a person who, uh, it sounds good in theory, but it's really hard in practice for you, or whether you just disagree with it entirely, this is a reading for us today. Because Christ calls us not to, uh, not to an easy life, but to a life of sacrifice. And I, yeah, I know that sounds awful, and you might say, well, but wait, Jesus said, my burden is easy. Uh, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's true, but that's because we get the grace from Christ to walk in it. Because remember, he calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. And so that means that there are some things within our own preferences that we have to put to death in order to follow him fully. And as we do follow him, he brings us joy and gives us the strength to walk in it. 
but it's often quite hard. And yesterday, uh, the Feast of St. Lawrence illustrates that for us, as St. Lawrence was a deacon who offered his own life uh, in, in protection of the church. And he did so by giving that preferential option for the poor. Now, St. Lawrence is a great, uh, I mean, he's like the patron saint of sarcasm. If you've not heard the story, of course, uh, the, the Roman governors wanted uh, money from the church. And so they, uh, they martyred the, the bishops and the, the deacons other than St. Lawrence and, uh, and instructed St. Lawrence to go and bring the wealth of the church. And St. Lawrence said, give me a couple of days. And so off he went. And when he returned, he returned with all of the poor. And he said to the, the authorities, he said, here is the treasure of the church. Well, they weren't too thrilled with that. And so they, um, they put him on a grill and they grilled him alive. And uh, he, could have, he could have complained. He could have done a number of things. But legend says that he looked at his torturers and said, you can turn me over. I'm done on this side. <laughs> so... St. Lawrence is fantastic. We always do, um, when we do All Saints Day and we dress the kids up uh, and they go trick-or-treating in their saint costumes, St. Lawrence is a really easy one, right? Because you put a kid in a red shirt for the martyr and then you get um, a cooling rack for cookies and you put it on their front and their back so that they're on a little grill, right? It's, this is awful, I know, but we do it. We've done it twice. Uh, and then you get a clear bag and in the clear bag you put construction paper flames and that's their candy bag. And people always say, what are, what are you supposed to be? And we get to joyfully, gleefully tell them all about St. Lawrence. And it gives us some really interesting um, interactions, as you can imagine. But St. Lawrence knows what it's like to follow when it's hard. And so our readings today from the gospel uh, come from the gospel of John, where Jesus said to his disciples, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. For where I am, there also will my servant be. The Father will honor whoever serves me. That reading comes from the Gospel of John, and it comes with a promise that as we serve Christ even in things that may feel like martyrdom or may actually be martyrdom, uh, we will be honored by the Father as we serve Christ, as we give up our life in the little things and the big things here, then we are given eternal life. Whoever loses his life will find it, right? Our reading from church history comes from a sermon by St. Augustine as he talks about St. Lawrence. And he says, The Roman Church commends to us today the anniversary of the triumph of St. Lawrence. For on this day he trod the furious pagan world underfoot and flung aside its allurements and so gained victory over Satan's attack on his faith. As you've often heard, Lawrence was a deacon of the church at Rome. There he ministered the sacred blood of Christ. There, for the sake of Christ's name, he poured out his own blood. St. John the Apostle was evidently teaching us about the mystery of the Lord's Supper when he wrote, Just as Christ laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. My brethren, Lawrence understood this, and understanding, he acted upon it. 
just as he had partaken of a gift of self at the table of the Lord, so he prepared to offer such a gift. In his life, he loved Christ. In his death, he followed in his footsteps. Brethren, we too must imitate Christ if we truly love him. We shall not be able to render better return on that love than by modeling our lives on his. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. In saying this, the Apostle Peter seems to have understood that Christ suffered only for those who follow in his steps, in the sense that Christ's passion is of no avail to those who do not. The holy martyrs followed Christ even to shedding their life's blood, even to reproducing the very likeness of his passion. They followed him, but not they alone. It is not true that the bridge was broken after the martyrs crossed, nor is it true that after they had drunk from it, the fountain of eternal life dried up. I tell you again and again, my brethren, that in the Lord's garden are to be found not only the roses of his martyrs, in it are also the lilies of the virgins, the ivy of wedded couples, and the violets of widows. On no account may any class of people despair, thinking that God has not called them, Christ suffered for all. What the scriptures say of him is true. He desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Let us understand then how a Christian must follow Christ even though he does not shed his blood for him and his faith is not called upon to undergo the great test of the martyr's sufferings. The Apostle Paul says of Christ our Lord, Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a prize to be clung to. How unrivaled his majesty. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, made in the likeness of men, and presenting himself in human form. How deep his humility. Christ humbled himself. Christian, That is what you must make your own. Christ became obedient. How is it that you are proud? When this humbling experience was completed and death itself lay conquered, Christ ascended into heaven. Let us follow him there. For we hear Paul saying, If you have been raised with Christ, you must lift your thoughts on high. Where Christ now sits, at the right hand of God. That reading comes from a homily on the topic of the martyrdom of St. Lawrence and our own call to holiness, and that homily is by St. Augustine. How apropos this is for us as we consider the hard teachings of the Church, whether it be Humana Vitae or some other document or some other tenet of the faith. How important it is for us to hear this call to holiness, which is wrapped up in this call to humility and to obedience. And at times it feels like we are so far removed, not only from, uh, from the apostles, but also from the saints, that, that somehow our age makes it harder to follow. And yet, really, if we get right down to it, if we say, you know, Lord, I trust you and I love you and I know that you are guiding your church. And even though I don't fully comprehend it right now, I'm going to wrestle with this until I can see it the way your church sees it, until I can practice it the way that the church is calling me to practice it. Because in this humility, 
in this obedience, while it may feel like it's uh, uh, some kind of a sacrifice of losing our life, it's in that loss that we find true fulfillment and true happiness, uh, that we find what we were created to be, and that is holy and deeply in relationship with Jesus Christ. That's all the time we have today. Today's show is brought to you by Rodney Moxley and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, join their numbers, and get all the extra segments with our guests, including one with Archbishop Cordelione this week as we talk about his vocation story and how to foster vocations. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.